It's so great to have you guys in worship with us this morning. We want to make you aware of a few announcements as we head into this new week, especially with the Christmas season upon us, several things beginning to crank up in regards to that. Sunday, December the 11th, just a few weeks from now, a couple of things going on that day we want to make you aware about. Number one, we have the Lottie offering for foreign missions that Sunday morning. We want to ask you to begin going ahead and praying about how the Lord would have you to give. Uh, every penny of this offering goes to support uh, Southern Baptist international missionaries across the world. So we'll be joining together that day with other Southern Baptist churches all over America, all over the world, as we're giving toward foreign missions that day. So be thinking, praying about how a church-wide Christmas gathering. Uh, and so there are sign-up sheets available for you uh, on that. Uh, that's gone out a couple of different ways. Number one, uh, it's gone out to your email, a link that you can sign up. Or as you leave the sanctuary today, there are sign-up sheets on the tables just behind you as you make your way out. If you could sign up and let us know what you'll be bringing. And then after we're done eating together, we're going to go out uh, to some homes throughout our community, a uh, little Christmas caroling. And so I hope that you will make plans to not only attend and eat with us that, uh, that evening, but also to go out Christmas caroling. It's going to be a great evening as we come together as a church family. So great to have you here today. Uh, as Alex comes to lead us, let's prepare our hearts to worship King Jesus together today. Well, good morning, church family. We're so glad to have you all here worshiping with us, whether in person or online. Um, so let's, let's stand as we open and worship.
Good morning. Be seated if you would. We come to this Sunday morning, a special morning just on our calendar as we have gone through a a season of Thanksgiving. And I I would just remind you that Thanksgiving, again, it's not a day, it's not a season, it's the attitude and the disposition of our hearts uh, every day of our lives. Uh, And now we get to be particularly thankful during uh, an Advent, a coming Christmas season, as we're thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that coming means 
for us. Traditionally, we recognize today as the first Sunday of Advent, that, that word Advent meaning coming or an arriving, arrival, as we're thinking about, as we're celebrating, worshiping God for the coming, for the arrival of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we do that over these next few weeks, as we are preparing our hearts into this Christmas season, as we're remembering uh, the coming and the arriving of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come to save His people from their sins, we want to direct our hearts uh, in those ways as we gather and so we'll be, we're going to be lighting uh, over these next Sunday mornings leading up to Christmas morning, lighting of the Advent candle together, where every Sunday we'll be, we'll be focusing together on a particular aspect of Advent, uh, themes such as hope and love and joy and peace culminating in Christ, again, who has come to give us all of those things. And so as we observe that uh, together this morning, Stephen and Allison Pierce and their family are going to come going to read uh, scriptures for us that just direct our hearts to the hope uh, that we have been given by God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, lighting the first Advent candle this morning and pointing our hearts to our glorious Savior who has come for us. Good morning. Today on this first Sunday of Advent, we focus on the hope given to God's people. This hope waited with certainty until the Messiah came to save his people from their sins. And this hope continues to wait with certainty until the return of the Lord. As we hear God's word today, may the hope of the prophets and apostles be, our, be ours in fullest measure. So if you have a copy of God's word, you want to read together with me. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15 to begin. Genesis 3, 8 through 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So that, those verses there tell of the hopeless condition, right, of the human, uh, of mankind, apart from God. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, verses 2 and verses 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now finally, Romans chapter 15, verses 12 through 13. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you, with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. All right, bow with me. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much, Lord. Uh, God, I pray that this time, this Advent season, would be a time of celebration. God, that we would come together worshiping your name, thankful, Lord God, for what you have accomplished. That we would celebrate, Lord, the coming of the King. Um, Lord, I pray, Lord, that if there is one here that does not know you, that you would draw them, Lord. They would turn in repentance toward you. They would see the hope that they have in you, the hope for salvation, Lord God. God, we are so thankful for all that you have done, thankful for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. God, I pray that today your name would be magnified, glorified, Lord God, that we would worship you together. God, David brings the message to you today, to us today, Lord. I pray, Lord, that um, you would speak with clarity, wisdom, Lord God, and, uh, that you would prepare our hearts to hear what it is that you would have to say to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue in worship.
we saw him on the tree taking our sin and that he rose from the grave defeating death. He is our hope. Church family, let's pray. Father, thank you. God, that you saw fit, Lord, to save us. God, in your mercy and in your justice, Lord, you sent your son, Father, to die for our sins so that we might be able to live with you. God, I pray that Father, as Pastor David comes to bring the message, that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Lord, that we can leave this building better equipped to be your church. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that we've had the opportunity to worship you through song. Help us to continue to worship you through reading your scriptures. Father, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church families, you're being seated. I want to remind us that over the month of November, we've been focusing our hearts on a particular verse from Acts chapter 3. Hopefully meditating upon that, committing that to memory. We have been encouraged and exhorted by Pastor Matthew over these recent weeks about this verse, about the context of this verse, the application of this verse into our lives, into our souls. If Christmas is reminding us of anything, it's reminding us that Christ came, as we'll see next Sunday, to save his people from their sins. So the gift of faith through, uh, from God in the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us and what marks us, one of the defining marks of the people of God is that we are a repenting people. There's an initial call of repentance given to us and then throughout our Christian lives we are consistently repenting turning back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we find that through the precious blood of Christ Jesus, our sins are indeed blotted out. They have been placed upon Christ. We bear them no more. And the penalty for those sins has been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. So one more time, church family, would you join me and let's recite this verse together, committing it to our hearts, to memory, certainly to application in our lives. Let's read together. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Just before we come to the preaching of God's word this morning, let's take a moment and pray. Let's take a moment, uh, if necessary, to take those unconfessed sins before the Lord and have our hearts prepared good and fertile soil to receive the seed of his word in just a moment together. Let's pray. Father, this morning the lights are lit. The candle of Advent is aglow. Our songs reflect the realities of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Advent, Christmas is upon us. And oh God, we are so thankful our hearts rejoice. God, we're so thankful that Christmas is not rooted in a feeling. 
It's not just rooted in a season. Father, it's rooted in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, oh God, it is because of Christ, it is in Christ, it is through Christ that our praises are unto you. God, that our worship is given to you. Father, we're remembering this morning the totality of the gospel story. Father, we're remembering that at the fullness of time, Christ came to sink himself into human flesh, to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to go to the cross as the perfect substitute, God, for sinners, to bear on that cross the sin of your people, the wrath justly poured out because of sin. Father, we're remembering the gospel story this morning that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that we have life. It is through Him that faith comes. God, it is because of Him that transgressions are blotted out. Not because you let bygones be bygones, but God, because you placed them on your Son and you crushed Him in our place. So Father, as we fix our eyes on the incarnation of Christ, as we think about His coming, His advent among us, God, it is incumbent upon us that we remember why Jesus came. So Father, as we look to Bethlehem's manger, we see there also Jerusalem's cross where the Lord of glory would give His life. Father, humble us under that reality. God, remind us that as we celebrate over these coming weeks, as we gather, as we rejoice, as we have fun with one another, as we worship together, God, that it is all rooted in who Jesus is and what He came to do for His people. And God, as we begin to think about that from Matthew's Gospel this morning, Lord, as we are drawn into the realities of who Jesus is. Father, that compels us then to rightly consider what He has done for us, and it draws us to a place, O God, where we respond in faith. God, where we bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, where sinners in the room that are not yet in right relationship with You through Jesus, God, they come face to face with their salvation. Father, Your Word is powerful. God, in this moment, the power in the room is not in the man in the pulpit. Father, it is in the power of Your holy and errant, inspired, eternal Word. So Father, we don't come merely this morning to listen to a man preach a sermon. And God, although that this is the central focal moment of the Lord's day, Father, we're reminded in this moment that most of all, O God, we come to hear from You. So, Father, I pray for the people gathered to hear from your word today, O God. Humble us. Open our eyes, O God, so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. O God, show us Christ. And may we respond accordingly to that. We ask and we pray all these things in his great name. Amen. Church family, if you would take your copy of God's Word and join me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. 
Matthew chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 to 17 is where we'll be together. We come to the first Sunday of Advent. We also come to the beginning of a new sermon series together through Matthew's Gospel. Incidentally, Matthew's Gospel account, as you're finding your way there, it begins with events surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we begin this new sermon series together, we do that right here at Christmas to also study the birth narrative, at least Matthew's account of that in these opening chapters of Matthew. My hope in so doing this with you is that you and your families will be served well uh, as you begin to worship, to give thanks to the Lord this Christmas season. My hope is that our times together in Matthew's Gospel over these coming weeks will serve you well so that you might faithfully worship the Lord together with your families. Matthew, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, wrote his Gospel account sometime mid to late 50s up through sometime around the early mid-60s, some 20 to 30 years after the earthly life, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew writes his gospel account predominantly to a Jewish audience in order to say to them, Jesus, who lived among you, in fact, whom you crucified, he is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus Christ is the promised son of David, who would establish the eternal kingdom promised to David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Matthew is proclaiming in his gospel account that as the king, Jesus has a way in which he prescribes for the people of his kingdom to live. So just very broadly That's why Matthew writes this gospel account. Some of you that have read through the gospels, you will know well that various gospels highlight or emphasize various aspects of the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew writes for those reasons. And then as you turn to the opening chapter of Matthew's gospel, you are confronted here, you're met with a list of names. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And I think we're left to ask and answer the question this morning, why, Matthew? Why would you begin your gospel account in that way? If we're honest, and look, none of us are going to say it out loud this morning, but if we're honest, we might even ask ourselves the question, surely, Matthew, there is something a little more exciting or a little more important that you could write about at the beginning of your gospel account other than a list of names. Maybe we would even have the thought or ask, Matthew, surely. Surely there's a better way to get into the story of Jesus other than pointing us to his family tree. Why, Matthew, would you do it this way? Well, Matthew begins with this list of names, this genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ for a very important reason. He does so to show us who Jesus is and from whom Jesus would come. Again, we know that the gospel accounts are about Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do. So then, if we're going to rightly understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, then we need to know his family line, specifically 
if Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, if he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises, if he is the the fulfillment of all the hopes, and if Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins, then he has to be from the right line of people. This genealogy then, it proves Jesus is who he says he is. It proves that all the Old Testament scriptures really do point to him. That all of the Bible really is about him and, beloved, that Jesus is the king to whom our allegiance is due. And so lest we glumly think this morning, oh boy, a genealogy to begin the Christmas season. How fun is that, David? Let me remind us, beloved, that without this genealogy, we have no Christmas. That without Jesus being from this particular line of people in Matthew 1, the hopes and fears of all the years are not met in ancient Bethlehem. If Jesus is not from this line of people, then the baby in the manger is just simply that. A baby in a manger. But, if Jesus comes from this particular line, if He is David's greater Son, then church, rejoice. For salvation has come. I want us to see five truths from this genealogy this morning. And no doubt you're probably thinking, what five truths can we possibly get from a list of names? Buckle in with me, church. I think this is going to be glorious in your eyes. Five truths about Jesus Christ from this genealogy, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. Number one, what we see together in verse 1 is that Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus, the baby in the manger, the one whom we celebrate, Jesus is the rightful king. Chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a genealogy, Matthew says in verse 1. The Greek word there is going to be a word that's super familiar to you. It's the Greek word, Genesis, which means what? The beginning, the beginnings. Now, to be sure, let's make a theological declaration about Jesus here. Jesus is the eternal God, the eternal word, the eternal logos of God in John chapter 1 and verse 1. And so we do not need to think of Matthew 1 and verse 1 as the moment of Jesus' birth being the moment where he begins to exist. It's a distinction that has been made all throughout church history, one that we must be so clear about. In fact, they found it necessary to speak of this in the Nicene Creed about Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, of God begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. 
For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. So then, in Matthew 1 verse 1, when we're considering the beginning, the genesis of Jesus in verse 1, we are speaking then about his earthly life, his earthly Existence, as where Martin Luther once said, Jesus came and sunk himself into human flesh. That's what we're considering about his beginning. And notice in verse 1 how Matthew describes the Lord Jesus here in three different ways. Number one, he describes him as Jesus the Messiah, the the name Jesus. And we'll look at this more closely next Sunday when the angel comes to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua, God or Yahweh is salvation. He is Jesus, the Messiah, verse 1. Messiah, the the Greek term Christos. Some of your Bibles translate it that way. Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one, the chosen one, the one from God. Verse 1 is telling us that Jesus is the promised, anointed one of God who would come as the kingly redeemer to rescue his chosen people. Names and titles are important because they're pointing us to who Jesus is and what it is that he came to do at this celebration we now call Christmas. And so, look in verse 1, follow it with me. If you're going to be the Messiah, if you're going to be the set-apart one of God, then it is incumbent, it is necessary. You have to then be born from the line of the kings. And so secondly, Matthew describes Jesus how? The Messiah, the son of David. The son of David. What does that language mean that Jesus is the son of David? Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We speak of this particular portion of Scripture as the Davidic covenant that God comes and makes with David. It's a glorious promise that God makes. It's one of eternal nature that God makes with David. Let's look at it. Just read with me, starting in verse 12. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12. When your days are complete, as God speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we recall that David would have a son Solomon who would ascend to the throne. But beloved, 
when we read then in Matthew 1 verse 1 that Jesus is the son of David and when we consider 2 Samuel chapter 7, what are we being told in this moment about Jesus? That he is the descendant of 2 Samuel chapter 7 who the Lord would bring and establish an eternal kingdom. This language continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And we heard read this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7, and the governments will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Jesus is the Son of David who would come as the kingly Redeemer to rule and to reign over His people. So look back in verse 1 with me. If you're going to be the promised anointed Messiah from the line of kings to come and save God's people from their sins, then you have to be also Jewish. You have to be Hebrew. This is why at the end of verse 1, we read that Jesus is also thirdly what? He is the Son of Abraham. Jesus is the Son that was promised to Abraham that would bring about God's blessing to all the nations. Now, uh, some of you are, are you know, filing back through your brain, remembering some Old Testament history here, and you're, you're, you're saying rightly to yourself, now wait a minute, didn't Abraham have a son that we know as Isaac? Yes, that is absolutely true. But as we consider the totality of Scripture and all that's being said about Jesus in Matthew 1 and verse 1, we're being reminded that Isaac is not ultimately the greater son of Abraham. Jesus is that greater son. Isaac is a foreshadowing. He is a type. He is pointing us forward to Christ. So what do we have in verse 1, church? We have here before us, when you put all of this together, the reality that Jesus is not just some helpless baby in a manger that we can go and take a look at or we can ignore depending on how we feel about Him. That Jesus is the Christ. That He is the Son of David. That He is the Son of Abraham means that Jesus and Jesus alone is the rightful King of kings and Lord of lords. Not a helpless baby in a poor little manger. He's the king. Not someone you can ignore. He is the king. His words are not words that can be sidelined from the day in and day out of your life. They are the edict, the words of the king. And they demand our attention. If you spend any time with me, at least certain people of my family, uh, you will find us to be massive J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Ring, Hobbits kind of people, all right? And in The Lord of the Ring, there's a moment, this sort of allegorical 
story from Tolkien that is ultimately, I think, pointing us to the kingly rule and reign of King Jesus. There's a moment sort of near the beginning of this book where the kingly figure, he's a little obscure at this point in the book, but there's a a moment where he is derided. He has uh, spoken, uh, someone there speaks ill toward him, of him. And one of the characters in this story, the elf, Legolas, you didn't think you would come to church this morning to hear about an elf, but here we are. Legolas in the Lord of the Rings stands up in defense of this man Aragorn, and he says, this is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, you owe him your allegiance. In that moment, he's giving a bit of a genealogy. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and because of who he is and from whom he comes, you owe him your allegiance. Church, does King Jesus have your allegiance this morning? Does he have primary and first place in your life? Is there any way in which you have sidelined Jesus, his word, from your life? Ask yourself this morning as we're considering Christmas and this genealogy, it's showing me that Jesus is the rightful king. Does he have his rightful place in my heart? in my life, in my priorities this morning. Secondly, second truth about Jesus, verse 2, is that Jesus is God's plan to save his people from their sins. Jesus is God's plan to save his people from their sins. Look in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. I want you to pay attention to the language of verse 2. I want you to see what's being said, and I also want you to pay attention to what's not being said. So think about Abraham with me for a moment. Look at the language there in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Notice what it doesn't say, though. It does not say Abraham was the father, or to Abraham was born Ishmael. It doesn't say that, does it? Abraham was the father of of Isaac, even though Ishmael is Abraham's firstborn son, it is not through Ishmael that the blessing to the nations would come. Ishmael is not the child of promise. Verse 2 makes clear that Isaac is that child of promise. Ishmael was brought about by the will of man, brought about by the will of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. But Ishmael was not God's plan to save his people from their sins. Church, salvation does not come to us by our cunning, by our scheming, by any will of man, by any exercise of our own will, but salvation comes by the sovereign plan and will of God. There is no plan that we can devise No matter how crafty, no matter how tightly we tie up all the loopholes, there's no plan that we can devise in our own hearts, in our own lives, that is going to save us from our sins. In fact, any plan that we devise is just going to make the problem worse. So Christ has come. We're reminded that in John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, but as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Have you come to Christ as your Savior this morning? Look secondly in verse 2 regarding Isaac. Notice the language here and then notice what it doesn't say. To Isaac, he was the father of Jacob. It does not say that Isaac was the father of Esau, even though Esau was the elder brother. By all human standards, it should have been Esau, right? By all human logic and economy, Esau should have been the one who would perpetuate the line of God's promises to Abraham. However, verse 2 says what? That it's not Esau, but in fact, it is Jacob who perpetuates that line. Church, God's ways are not our ways. And God does not operate on the basis of human logic and human reasoning. Turn to Romans 9 for just a moment. Romans chapter 9. Pick up with me in verse 6. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Pay careful attention to the language here. Romans 9, verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, pay attention here, church, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. This is why in Matthew 1 verse 2 that Isaac is the father not of Esau, but of God's sovereign plan. He is the father of Jacob. And then thirdly there in verse 2, notice the language about Jacob. Jacob, to Jacob, he is the father of Judah and his brothers. It does not say that Jacob is the father of Reuben, even though Reuben is Jacob's firstborn. To Jacob was born Judah and his brothers. And it is through Judah that the line of kings would come. What's the point here? We're seeing here in verse 2 that Jesus is the way that God is going to save his people from their sins. Church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that the cross, that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are being saved, or to those who are perishing, excuse me. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The the way that God operates in verse 2 goes against all human standard reasoning, logic, and understanding. But Jesus, from this line, that line being woven according to God's sovereign will and plan, flies in the face of the world's philosophy 
but it is through Jesus that salvation comes. The philosophy of the world is always going to put forth its own Savior. Its own logical way of of getting right and getting to heaven or getting to a better place when you die. But there is only one Christ. There is only one Messiah. There is only one Savior. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. And you come to God through Him or you do not come to God at all. He has God's plan to save His people from their sins. Thirdly, thirdly, Jesus is the Savior of all the nations. Jesus is the Savior of all the nations. Buckle in with me. Verses 3 down to 15. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon, and Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of of Abiud. Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achan, and and Achim the father of uh, Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. Merry Christmas, right? What is happening in verses 3 to 15? Well, listen, we're not going to parse out the story of of every name mentioned in that verse. Let me make just a couple of observations for us, though, from verses 3 to 15. Number one, Jesus comes from a line of absolute scoundrels, church. As you're reading that list of names in verses 3 to 15, and we're trying to wrap our brain around what's going on there, we're seeing that Jesus is the Savior of all the nations, and it turns out that the nations, that the people brought into the family of God, they are a bunch of scoundrels. Just consider the people, let's just consider the people in verse 2, Abraham. He lied about his wife twice. Hey, she's my sister so that he wouldn't die. David, the adulterer, the murderer. Jacob, the deceiver who played favorites with his children. Judah had a grotesque sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law. These are broken people with broken, messed up lives. Really messed up marriages. Really messy circumstances. And church, be encouraged by this. 
be encouraged by how broken some of these people are because it's reminding us that Jesus comes as the Savior of all the nations, coming from a line of broken people to redeem that broken people. Christmas for all of its, its, its glitter and its lights and its shining and happiness, Christmas is a reminder of our sinful brokenness and the reality that Jesus had to come down here and get in the middle of this mess that we had made to fix it and to redeem it. Church, no one then in this room No one in the sound of my voice or wherever the gospel is proclaimed, no one in the room is too broken to be saved by God's grace. Nobody. Nobody in this room is beyond the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me remind us what Matthew would later say in Matthew 9, verses 12 to 13. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And church, aren't we so thankful that Jesus didn't come down here and get in the middle of all of this mess to call those who thought in their own self-righteousness that they had no need of him. He came to get down here and to call sinners, broken, messy sinners like me and you, into his covenant people. Not only did Jesus came to save broken people, a bunch of scoundrels, but he also came to save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Just look at some of these names again. We, we can't look at all these, but just in verse 3. Just kind of let your eyes start there. Tamar, Canaanite. Rahab, verse 5, Canaanite. Ruth, verse 5, Moabite. Bathsheba, verse 6, Hittite. There are others in the list of names. They're outside of the Hebrew community of people. Uh, Furthermore, just in those names that we mentioned, furthermore, all of those names are women. Women who were greatly marginalized in this culture, not by God's design, but by the sinfulness of mankind. And Jesus comes down into our world to be the blessing promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, to be the blessing to all the nations. Jesus comes to make Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 a reality. You remember that moment in Revelation? Listen to it. Chapter 5 verses 9 and 10, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. Jesus comes to be the Savior of all the nations. Christmas is the declaration. It's a reminder to us, church, that Jesus came To save a people from every tribe, every tongue, every land, every nation. And church, it's a reminder to us that we must make Jesus known if the nations will come to Him. Christmas 
is both an invitation to come and see and an exhortation to go and tell. Church, don't forget that in the midst of all your revelry throughout the month of December, that we do that to make Jesus known. For He came as the Savior of the world. Fourthly, Jesus is the divine Son of God. We will not spend much time here because we're going to focus on this heavily next Sunday. But in verse 16, Jesus is the divine Son of God. Notice the language here. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The rhythm of all of the previous verses has been to so-and-so was born so-and-so. But that's not the language of verse 16, is it? Verse 16 does not say to Joseph was born Jesus. The language is that Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom was born Jesus. Just very briefly, we'll think more about this next Sunday, but the language of verse 16 instructs us that Jesus was not conceived by an earthly father, but by the Holy Spirit. We'll look at this at verse 20 next Sunday. Not conceived by an earthly father, but by the Holy Spirit. And so as a result of that, Jesus will not have humanity's sin nature passed down to him through his father Joseph. He will therefore be the perfect, sinless, divine God-man who can go to the cross and be the perfect substitutionary atonement for our sins. Jesus is the divine Son of God. And then lastly in verse 17, Jesus is the King who comes at the fullness of time. Jesus is the King who comes at the fullness of time. The language of verse 17 may seem a bit perplexing. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. What's the significance of that 14 generations language? Matthew's purpose in organizing Jesus' genealogy in this way has a lot more to do with theology than chronology. And a lot of questions have been asked about the the dates and the times and how does it all line up. Sometimes it doesn't seem to line up, but we have to remember Matthew's greater purpose. It's not just to get us chronologically every I dotted and T crossed, although I certainly believe he does that. But Matthew's greater point is to point us to the theology, the, the theology of Jesus and who he is. And so his purpose here is to teach us something about Christ. Notice the breakdown. From Abraham to David, it's going to be 14 generations. So from Abraham to the time of the kings, 14 generations. Then from David to deportation, 14 generations. So from the time of the kings to the time when there was no king. Recall what what happens, 586 B.C. Babylon comes in, they overthrow kind of the final remnants of the southern kingdom of Judah. They deport God's people to Babylon. There's not going to be a king in Israel anymore. 
that for which they had longed so many centuries prior, now no longer exists. Once again, there is no king in Israel. And then finally in verse 17, from the deportation to Babylon, to the Messiah, to the Christ, from the time where there were no kings, to the time when the king came. Jesus then is the better son He is the better descendant. He is the better king who came at the fullness of God's time to save his people from their sins. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. How many generations passed? How many years, how many peoples filled those generations? And how often did they cry out to God, Oh God, how long? How long, O Lord? It it echoes, in a sense, the cry of the Exodus, does it not? Oh God, do you not see us in our groaning? Oh God, do you not see us in our brokenness? Oh God, do you not care about the chains in which we are bound? And what verse 17 is declaring that God saw it. God had a sovereign plan that through millennia upon millennia, He had been weaving together and just at the right time, Galatians 4. At the fullness of time, God brought forth His Son to redeem those who were under the curse of the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. As full, as full companions and children of Christ in His eternal kingdom. So then Christmas is God's declaration to you, beloved. I see you. I see your brokenness. I care about what sin has done to you. I have been working out my plan of redemption. And so here is Jesus for you. Here is Christ, the King, for you. And He will most definitely come to be our King, to be our Savior, on a daring rescue mission to save His people from their sins. Two questions. Church, for those of you who are in Christ, can I just ask you to ask a question into your hearts in this moment? Unequivocally, what we're seeing about Jesus in these first 17 verses is that He's the promised one. He's the King. He's the Messiah. Does Jesus have his rightful place in your life? As you consider your lives, you consider your time, as you consider your priorities, as you consider the place that Jesus has in your heart, in your family, does Jesus have his rightful place? As we move our way throughout Matthew's gospel in the coming weeks and months, we're going to find that Jesus, when he begins to speak, he will speak about what his kingdom is like and what the inhabitants of that kingdom, what their lives should be like. 
and over and over and over again, we're, we're just funneled in, we're funneled down to see the king and to ask ourselves the question, am I living my life in accordance with who Jesus is and what he is calling me to be and to do in my life? So maybe one response that we might would give in light of the preaching of God's word this morning is that we'll just ask the Spirit of God in us, church, just to search our hearts, to know us, to show us if there's any unclean way inside of us, and then to lead us in the everlasting way. But then secondly, do you know Jesus as King, as Savior of your life? Jesus did not come here just to make your life better. Jesus did not come here to make you into a better version of yourself. Friend, the very best version of yourself is still not enough to make you right before a holy God. The only way that you can stand before God in His presence, blameless and with great joy, is to receive Christ as your Lord, as your King, as your Savior in this moment. The call has gone out by the preaching of God's Word. And if you don't know Christ this morning, the response is to call out to God, to proclaim Christ as your only Savior, to commit yourself to Him as you turn from your sins from which He came to save you. Jesus is the King, church. Let's live our lives honoring Him as such. Let's pray together this morning. Father, this is a unique text before us. We look at it and it initially feels maybe overwhelming or not quite sure what the point is or what we're supposed to learn from this. But God, in these 17 verses, we're finding rich, glorious truths about Jesus. That He came from the right line because He is the promised Messiah. He is, oh God, the one who would come to crush the serpent's head. God, at least one thing that I hope happens in our hearts this morning is that Jesus is just big in our eyes. He is so glorious, perfect, holy. Father, He sits at Your right hand with nail-scarred hands and nail-pierced feet. Seated there because the work of redemption is done. Interceding now as our prophet, priest, and king. God, even as we think about the first advent of Christ, we're awaiting His second advent. when He will come again to judge the nations in righteousness, to take His people back to the garden once again. 
God, help us to align our thoughts about Jesus to the truth of your word. Help us to align our lives with how the King calls us to live. And Father, for the one in the room that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, help them to see that even in this list of names, what we're learning is that there is no other Savior but King Jesus. God, give them the gift of faith. Call them to yourself. God, help them to respond in faith to you. God, as we sing, oh God, help us to respond accordingly in this moment and then throughout the rest of this day, the rest of our lives, oh God. We love you and we thank you. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's great name. Amen.